Welcome to AF Talks, where we engage in informative and inspiring conversations relevant to today's association professionals. I'm your host, Michelle Mason. Today's guest is Michael Frostberg. Our topic will be basically hearing Michael's personal journey, which I believe is so fascinating, and also understanding from Michael how the art of storytelling can help you heal. And with that all said, I'd like to welcome Michael. We're really excited that you're here with us today, and this is going to be a very, very engaging, timely, provocative discussion. So Michael, before we get started, just at a high level, without totally giving your story away, tell us a little about yourself. <laughs> well, um, I am more than my story, I guess is what I would say. <laughs> it's, good, it's good to be here with you, Michelle, and I'm happy to share this. Um, story and and the ideas behind storytelling and whatnot. Um, I have been, uh, I'm a Chicagoan, I guess I would say right there. I was born and raised in the northern suburbs of Chicago and Waukegan, and I've been engaged in the um, arts field, entertainment field for my entire life, actually. I've been an actor and a writer and a director and a teacher and um, worked at Northwestern University in a summer program there, um, teaching um, young uh, aspiring actors to be actors and, uh, and uh, have lived, have spent a, a good deal of time off in the Los Angeles area as well. I lived out there for about 12 years. Part of my story um, has to do with some of that. And, uh, and then I moved back here to Chicago, I guess it was in 2000 and, uh, and have been here since and um, doing what I've been talking to you about, about acting, directing, teaching. And then I've sort of moved into this, this is kind of strange, but we're probably going to talk about this. I sort of moved into this um, uh, diversity and inclusion field, um, utilizing the arts as a means to open up the door on important conversations about how we see ourselves and how we look at other people. Wonderful. Michael, you're the CEO founder of Incognito. Can yes. you tell us what that means? Sure. Well, I think if you don't mind, I'll leave Incognito as kind of a secret until I actually tell my story because it will be become more apparent why I named the company Incognito. It is also the name of the play that I perform, this, this one-man play, and it's also the name of um, my memoir, which was published in 2011, it's called Incognito, an American Odyssey of Race and Self-Discovery. Okay, that sounds great. So I'll ask one question before we hear, you about, <laughs> hear about your personal journey. All right. Sure. Well, uh, help us understand, Michael, how storytelling can help you heal, particularly if you look at what's happening in today's world. What are your thoughts about that? Yes. Well, we had a little bit of a discussion about this, you and I, on the phone, and I think I'd like to share this story that just sort of, um, I don't, it brought tears to my eyes, really, when th in thinking about it, when my friend shared it with me. So um, this is happening in the midst of um, protests across the country about um, racial inequities, racial injustices, um, spurred by the police actions of, um, against uh, George Floyd, but also uh, underlining every aspect of our society. It's, it's, so in other words, it's more than just a police um, response and, and our justice system, criminal justice system and whatnot. Um, anyway, I went to college at the University of Minnesota, and um, I have a, a very good friend of mine, who, a college friend who's, who lives up there with his wife and family, and uh, he's right in the midst of it. He's right next to the neighborhood where all of this took place, and he's been um, um, 
very nervous about all of this and um, lots of things happening in that city, obviously. And, and he's been a real integral part in, in my story for many years. Um, he was a video, he's a videographer. He's actually videotaped me several times. And, um, and we've had many long discussions about this. Anyway, he was um, actually on his way out to um, be a part of a protest. Um, I can't remember whose house he was um, going, they were going to protest in front of. And on his way there, he encountered some of the um, fellow protesters and elders um, from the protest movement. Um, and so he wanted to offer his help in some way. And so he went up to one of the elders of this group and sort of introduced himself and said, listen, I'm, I'm a videographer, I'm a, a, an audio person, and I'd love to, um, you know, help in any way that I can. If you ever need, you know, like audio equipment at rallies or protests or whatever, I'm, I'm happy to provide that and help you with that and whatever. And the elder sort of said to him, you know, I'm, we're, we're not interested. Thank you. And sort of was taken aback by him and also sort of put him off. And so he just thought, well, okay, that's maybe I overset my bounds or I, I you know, whatever I, I, and so he kind of walked away and, uh, and then the elders turned and said, no, you know what, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I, I spoke that way to you. And I really need to be more open um, with people, but I hope you understand that this has been all very trying for our community. And he said, listen, I'm, I'm really just here to listen. Um, <laughs> there's a little story behind that, but he, but he said, I'm really just here to listen and to hear and to try to help. Uh, and then he proceeded to tell this person his story about um, his life. And he, one of the reasons I think he is so attached to my story, aside from the fact we've been friends for many, many years, is that uh, he grew up in a foster home and he does not know who his biological parents are. And that's a real key part of my story, which we'll get to. Uh, and so he told this whole story about growing up in a foster home and how the difficulties behind that and, and what that meant to him. And, and then he proceeded to share my story with this person and told them all about um, again, the connections between us and the importance of my story and all this. And then the elder started to tell their story to my friend, Greg. And they just went back and forth, relating their stories, telling more bits and parts, and parts about their story to the point of, and the point of this whole story is that once they shared who they were, where they came from, their roots and whatnot, they were able to make a very, very deep and meaningful connection. And they walked away from this with um, probably a, an elbow bump. I was gonna say handshake, but we don't do that anymore. Um, and they were able to talk about, you know, listen, um, here's my number, um, please contact me. Here's my number, they exchanged information. And they, they, they really created a bond simply by telling their stories to one another. And this is how we can heal. You know, this is where we find our commonalities. This is so rich um, in, in, in the ways that we connect with people and, and the ways that we find these, these, these commonalities. It, 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 we discover these things um, and, and those differences that, 
the, at, the first things that we see when we see people are the differences or we hear differences, different accents, different dialects, different skin tones, different um, um, hairstyles, whatever it might be that turns us off or creates most of the time an unconscious bias reaction towards someone. When you can get past those and start to tell your story, that's where you find the richness of our commonalities. And so this is, um, I thought, was just a, a, a really stark and um, powerful example of how important storytelling is. Wow, that is very true. It's the, the commonalities that make us stronger, not necessarily the differences. And so I think that we can learn a lot through that, for, through you sharing that with us as we seek to heal um, as a nation, but also as we move into helping uh, to understand, seek first to understand me and who I am, right. which is extremely important. And I'm sure everyone's wondering, what is Michael's story? <laughs> yes, probably and by now I've tried to set all this up, right? <laughs> Tell us your story, Mike. Uh, yeah, so, um, you know, I grew up in a, a working class white family in, uh, in Waukegan, Illinois, which is just about 30, 40 miles north of Chicago along the lakefront. And I grew up um, um, with my biological mother, who was of Armenian descent, and an adoptive stepfather who was of Swedish descent. Um, my mother had left my biological father when I was very young, about two years old, and then moved back home to Waukegan to live with her parents. And then she reconnected with this man, um, John Fosberg, who um, she had actually gone to high school with, and um, they, married, she remarried when I was about mm, between four and five years old. And then they brought me up in Waukegan and then they had some kids um, later on. And I have a, I guess, for lack of a better term, a half brother and a half sister. I don't call them that. They're my brother and my sister. I was raised with them, but technically I guess they're half. And then um, as years went on, um, I got we went to college, as I mentioned, the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis and came back to Chicago, did lots of theater work around the theater and community in Chicago, then moved out to Los Angeles to try to <laughs> make it go in, in Hollywood. And, uh, and as I was out there, um, one morning I received a phone call from my sister informing me that our parents were going to get a divorce. And I have to tell you at this time, I had no clue, no inkling of this happening. And so it hit me like a ton of bricks and I was really upset by this. And um, I, 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 I lashed out at my mother. Um, and um, well, I guess would be a very inappropriate way, um, blaming her for the divorce of my parents and, um, and not really understanding all of the parameters behind all of it all. Uh, and at the time, uh, weirdly, I, I, I had a, a, a this is not weird, but I had a British girlfriend. And my British girlfriend at the time, when I told her all about this situation, about lashing out at my mother and whatnot, and she said, well, it sounds to me like um, you need to have a conversation with her because you don't know anything about your father. And, and I was like, what are you talking about? It? He wasn't the one, it was my mom. He said, no, no, your biological father. 
And when she said that, it just, you know, stopped me in my tracks. I didn't know anything about my biological father. My mother, as I mentioned, had left him when I was around two. We never had any conversation about him. She never told me anything about him. I was two years old. I mean, I don't know what she could have told me that I would have remembered or understood or whatever. And they got married when I was, my, my stepfather and my mother got married when I was like four or five, as I mentioned. And then, you know, I had a dad and they had, they got kids. I had brother and sister and life went on. I didn't really think anything about it. So my British girlfriend was saying, Hey, you need to ask some questions. And so I went um, and called my mother and asked her a few questions. And you know, like, I, I knew she told me his name was John Sidney Woods. I, I, I knew that. She told me that the last time she spoke with him was some 30 years prior to this. And I, she seemed to think that he still lived in the Detroit area for some reason. She really wasn't sure. And so that was all the information I had. They, they had, well, they, they, they lived in Boston. They were very poor. They got, she got pregnant in college. Um, they lived in a, very, very poor neighborhood, no money, no food, scared out of her mind, all of this. She decided to leave, move back with her parents. Um, a couple of years later, they got a divorce and then she remarried. So this was the story she told me. So I decided I was gonna try to go out and find him. Um, basically I had his name and the last place that he lived, which is the Detroit area. So I went to the library. <laughs> And uh, I went to the phone book section. This, this is something that dates us all, right? Who remembers phone books, right? But libraries used to have phone books and they had a phone book section where they, many libraries would have phone books from major cities around the country. So I went to the library, to the phone book section, the reference section and got the Detroit phone book. I looked up his name. There are about four or five listings for John Woods. I wrote them all down. I raced home. I lived in an apartment um, that was about the size of this Zoom screen. <laughs> and I, I paced back and forth. I wasn't sure what to do, what to say, how to, you know, what. And finally, I gathered the courage. I picked up the phone. I dialed the first number, the first name on the list. The guy answers the phone. And I said, I'm looking for a John Sidney Woods. And he paused and he said, you're speaking with him. And I thought, oh man, it can't be that easy, right? And so I, I thought, okay, um, did you live in the Boston area in 1957? And he paused again <laughs> and he said, yes, I did. And I thought, oh man, it, it's, this, is, this is impossible. So I said, were you married to an Armenian woman by the name of Adrian? Pilibosian, that was my mother's maiden name. And he paused again, what seemed like an hour now. And he said, yes, I was. And I realized that I had tracked my biological father down in a first phone call. And I was just absolutely beside, I didn't, I didn't even know what to say at that point. And we stumbled and I said, my name is Michael Fosberg and I'm your son. And um, we, we tried to talk to one another. He was like, oh my God, son, how are you? Where are you? We spoke, we tried to fill in some, I mean, you can only imagine how awkward it is now after 30 years not having spoken with your son, with your father, trying to fill in the blanks. And then at a certain point, he just said, you know, son, there's a couple of things you should know. I'm sure your mother's never told you. 
and I thought, well, okay, aside from not telling me about you, I mean, what else could there be, really? And he said, well, I, I want you to know that I've thought about you all these years. And um, I was absolutely elated. And, and he said, and I've loved you. And I couldn't, I was, you know, trying to hold back the tears. And then he said, there's one other thing I'm sure your mother's never told you. And I said, what? And he said, I'm African-American. And I, I remember, I, again, I was living in this tiny, tiny room. There, there was a full, like a, a full mirror across the room from me, which again, was tiny. And I kind of caught a glimpse of my, of my reflection in the mirror as if, wait a minute, did I just change? I was sort of looking for a clue, like, and, and then he proceeded to tell me about my family history. Um, my great, great grandfather was a member of the 54th Regiment in the Colored Infantry Unit in the Civil War. My great grandfather, was a uh, was a, a genius in the science and engineering departments at Norfolk State Uni University uh, are, are named after him. My grandparents were still alive. Um, you know, all of these things. I have a, I have a great grandfather who was an all-star pitcher in the Negro Leagues. Just all of these things, you know, came up over our conversation and I was like, oh my gosh. And um, we swore that we'd stay in touch and we hung up the phone and um and that was the beginning of my journey of discovering you know i hate to use this cliche <laughs> but discovering my roots wow yeah that's that's powerful the power of stories stories can unite as well yeah. uh, they are very strong connections michael how we know that you're keynoting our welcoming environment virtual summit on July 22nd. Yeah. And so certainly don't want to give uh, your story and other in additional detail away. So we yeah. ask that our audience participate so they can interact with you and, yeah. and understand your story more. But a question is how is it, how did that moment change your life? Wow. There, I mean, there's, that's such a, I, there's so many things that have happened that have changed my life since that moment. Um, first of all, understanding that I, my entire life, I'd always felt that there was something different about me. I just could never explain what, I mean, there wasn't anything in my immediate family to suggest that I was any different than what they were. I mean, I realized I didn't know who my biological father was, but it never occurred to me that he could be black. And I think this is a part of having white privilege is not thinking outside the box that my dad could be black. Um, and then upon embracing that and, and embracing my family and my black family embracing me and understanding um, the depth and breadth of my family history and, and, and then trying to sort of sort all this out and write all this out. So I, again, I, I wrote this all out and published a memoir um, and then understanding the power, as we've been talking about, of sharing this story with other people, because it opens up the door for so many different conversations, not just about these commonalities that we have, because that is really the essence of the, of the conversations is these commonalities. But for me, it opens up these boxes or these openings for people to discuss what is race. What is blackness? What is whiteness? How do we talk about it? How do we not talk about it? Which is usually the case. 
and 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 by me again sharing this story in the form that I do, or just telling it like I am, you know, here on the podcast today. Um, in what ways can we approach having this conversation about race? And so that has been my journey to share the story, to get people to engage in this conference, to facilitate dialogues about race and identity. And then having done this now for, this is crazy, I can't believe I've done it. I've done this for over 15 years, telling the story. I do on average 60 or 70 presentations a year. Um, it has helped me learn tools um, that I share with people that people can um, go out and have more meaningful and authentic conversations about race and identity. So, Michael, that is really that's pretty powerful and leads us to Incognito. Can you tell us more about Incognito and how, through story, you help organizations have courageous conversations about race, about identity, about privilege? Yes, yes. So the, the, the word incognito itself is about someone being in disguise, so to speak. So not knowing who you are necessarily and being um, hidden to other people. And so that seemed like such an appropriate title for my play because so much of my life has been hidden and unknown to other people. And, you know, this, this brings up, again, uh, so many conversations um, and for many, this might they they might not even know about these conversations. And what I'm speaking of specifically is about passing that that comes up certainly during conversations following the play, following the presentation. Um, passing is something that was afforded very light-skinned African American people for many years, still to this day. Some um, and and passing. Um, for those who are not familiar with it, is um, the ability of an African American person to pass as white. So the question might be, well, why would someone want to do that? Well, um, I think we're sort of seeing that in the moment that we live in right now today. If um, George Floyd had been white or lighter skin, lighter skin, he might not be in the same peril that he was in, or many other. Um, um, names that we could name from Eric Gardner to Trayvon Martin. Um, passing also affords people privileges or benefits, um, such as being able to walk through a department store and not have um, sales clerk watch them the whole time they're in the store, or being able to hail a taxi, although I don't know how much we hail taxis anymore. But all of these different things um, are ascribed to passing. And so it brings up a very sensitive thing in the black community, passing being a very sensitive thing between light skin and dark skin African American people. Um, so incognito opens up that conversation, which is very big. And incognito broadly, um, everything that I've been doing under this umbrella is under the, the, the guise of um, how do we create a more inclusive place for us to engage in meaningful conversation about how we see ourselves and how we have to see other people. The business case for diversity and inclusion has already been made. We can talk about it. I'm happy to have that conversation, but there's plenty of studies that have been done, whether it's by McKinsey or other um, uh, organizations that have taken the time to study this extensively, that the more diverse and the more inclusive businesses as well as educational institutions are the greater the outcomes, meaning the, the, the increased bottom line, um, the greater the outcome in an, edu in an educational ins uh, institution or whatever it might be. And so what I'm trying to do when I go into uh, 
a business situation, a corporate situation, a governmental situation, done a lot of work with government agencies or to an educational situation is to, again, to present this play, which in many ways is, um, this is this extremely unique way of presenting material. Most times you're seeing people who are coming in and speaking and there's not, there are some incredible speakers as you well know out there who do this kind of work. But in this way, um, the play is both um, thought-provoking and extremely entertaining, and it allows people to laugh and provokes them to think deeply about, again, how they see themselves and how they look at other people. And then I move right into facilitating a conversation about all of the different issues that the play brings up. And we've talked about some of them, whether it's passing, whether it's covering, which is another issue which we'll talk about, um, uh, whether it's um, un unconscious biases, whether it's micro inequities, which is a, you know, maybe to some people in a foreign term or microaggressions, which is sort of similar on that vein, but it brings up all these different issues. And then I facilitate this conversation. And as we've talked about, give people tools to have more authentic conversations, whether it's the first tool is tell your story or whether it's um, a tool of um, which I'm sure many people have heard many times. It's not like I've you know, manufactured these tools. They come from things that I've noticed in doing this. We need to get comfortable being uncomfortable or we, um, we can disagree so long as we're not disagreeable. And so all of these things are things that I share with people throughout the course of the, the dialogue that I have after the play and allows um, companies to utilize these tools in their workspace to open up um, a space for this very difficult conversation. Thank you, Mike. The work that you're doing is so necessary and imperative now uh, more than ever before. It allows people to be comfortable hearing um, or to your point, having the uncomfortable conversation. And we know that it's because we were not, or we've not had the conversations while we're in the predicament that we're in now, right? Yes. Um, yes. And so we really need to bring out all sides and understand that, you know, different ideologies, that's a form of inclusion as well. Right. It's very important, just hearing different perspectives. Right. Uh, you mentioned it uh, earlier, you alluded to it, uh, but I just want to uh, spotlight it. What is the difference between covering and passing in your mind, in your view? So um, passing is when, as I mentioned before, is when a light-skinned African-American can pass as white. Covering are things that a variety of different people do to cover their identities, to um, um, create what may be perceived as a safer space for them. So whether it's from um, let's say a gay person not feeling comfortable about keeping a photograph of their partner on their desk um, for fear of being um, ostracized for it or ridiculed or whatever it might be in a workspace or um, not bringing their partner to the Christmas party or, or office party or something of that sort of office function or whether it's um, uh, mothers who have children who have um, seen or felt um, pushback on people who are um, bringing their children or talking about their children in the workspace and they feel as if that's not a safe space for them to talk about their children. Or whether it's um, 
hairstyles. This is a thing especially true for African-American women who um, oftentimes are braiding their hairs and that is not so acceptable. That we've seen take place in the military quite often um, and also in some high schools and places of um, uh, like that. So these are things that people do to cover to make them um, more acceptable or to assimilate them more into the social um, realm of where they're working or where they're studying or whatever it might be. Thank you, Michael. So what do you see to be the leader's role in helping their teams and helping their constituents move beyond that to bring their authentic self, their authentic voice to work situations or, or workplaces? Well, a leader's role is to set an example. I, I mean, I think that's a, you know, we, I, I often talk about this about modeling the behavior. Um, but of course, if, um, if the behavior isn't, the, the, and when I, I guess I would say when in modeling behavior, what I'm, what I'm talking about is giving them the permission, showing them through example, the permission that it is okay to talk, to have these conversations. And it is actually not just okay, but important to have these conversations in the workspace. Uh, again, the work case study on diversity and inclusion has been done. So if we want to um, not only increase the bottom line, but also increase the, the feeling of satisfaction in the workspace, um, the leader needs to set that, needs to be the priority um, in, in doing so. Right. Well, Michael, thank you so much for your time with us today. We look forward to just share, you sharing your story in more detail at the Welcoming Environment Virtual Summit on July 22nd. We encourage our audience to participate, to engage in a conversation with Michael. And I know over the time that I've had the opportunity to get to know you better, uh, I always walk away learning something new. And I appreciate that. And I, and I thank you for that gift. So as we conclude today's conversation, are there any parting thoughts, Michael, that you'd like to uh, share with our audience? and also you can provide them with their contact information. We need resources like you now to help our organizations heal and talk through um, or have those difficult conversations. Yes. Um, my parting thought would be I, I've been doing this work for 15 years and I, I can't, I mean, and there are there are a lot of companies and a lot of schools and a lot of government agencies who are also engaged in this work and the work of diversity and inclusion I'm speaking of. And there are a lot of companies who are just, um, I would say, simply talking the talk, but not walking the walk. And we see now, of course, there are a lot of companies that are putting out statements about what's happening right now. And that's all, that's, that's really great. I'm glad that they see the importance of that and that is important. But action is the most important thing. I, um, look, <laughs> I love what I do. I, I really, I'm, I have, obviously we've talked about this, I have such a great passion for what I do. I love um, going and working with people, whether it's corporation, government agency, educational institution, whatever but I'd rather not have this job. I'd rather not have to do this. I'd rather that people stepped in and took some concrete action and did things 
to really level the playing field, create a more um, welcoming environment, um, create a space that's more inclusive. I can't express it enough. Words are great, but actions are so, so important. Now, you can bring me in. I'm happy to come in and see you and speak to your um, organization, to your team members. Um, you can find me at incognitotheplay.com. Um, I've got, um, and now we're in this environment, I have um, virtual learning programs which are getting ready to um, launch um, within the next month or so. I've got a new book that's getting ready to come out in about a month called um, Nobody Wants to Talk About It, Race, Identity, and the Difficulties in Forging Meaningful Conversations. Um, you can email me at, at michael at incognitotheplay.com. Um, I'm happy to talk more about this anytime. Thank you, Michael. It has been a, a true pleasure. I, again, as I mentioned, I always learn something new from you, and, and that's so very important to me. So thank you for joining us today, and thank you for bringing your your, your uh, talents, your gift to our country, particular, particularly during this time, this time of need. And so we look forward to you engaging with our members and having a conversation through the use of story. To our audience, thank you for listening. Until next time.